Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The general election and your finances. With a week to go, what changes could the major parties bring in? If you're self-employed, have you got a pension? A third of self-employed women say they are saving nothing. But blogger Emma Maslin, better known as the Money Whisperer, has lots to say on this topic. And finally, they might say it's vulgar to talk about money. But James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist, is here to explain why he loves cash. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's news. With just one week to go now until the UK heads to the polls, what impact could the next government have on our personal finances? All of the major parties are committed to boosting public services, but investors are fearful of Labour's plans to renationalise great sections of industry and force large companies to give away shares to workers. Those policies have captured the most column inches in the press. What about other tax changes that could be on the cards from all of the major parties? Joining me now is Rachel Griffin, a tax and financial planning expert from Quilter. Welcome, Rachel. Hi. So whoever wins this election, the one thing it seems voters can be absolutely sure of is no tax cuts. Yes. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the headline is that there won't be any tax cuts. Um, we've got the three major parties. Um, we've got, obviously, Conservative Party, who are um, have suggested a triple tax lock. Uh, what they mean by that is we will have no, um, for the next five years, no increase to income tax, national insurance and VAT. Um, the Lib Dems have come out with a 1% increase basically on all the marginal rates. So we will see a 21%, uh, 41% and a 46% income tax rate. And then we have Labour who again have come up with um focusing on the higher earners and introducing a, a new higher rate band of 50% for earnings over 125,000. And then um, introducing the 45% band, bringing that threshold down to 80,000. So I think we will see obviously some changes, but not as radical as perhaps people thought. And I mean, this compares to the situation on the Tory leadership campaign back in the summer where Boris Johnson was promising tax cuts, um, saying that he would um, move the um, higher rate tax ban from 50,000 all the way up to 80. I mean, that is now long forgotten. But I suppose one of the um, things that readers most commented on on the general election article that we that we did last week is the effect of those um, income tax changes. Um, we set out 
um, what it would mean for the for the major parties on a range of salaries if you were earning, you know, 50, 100, 200,000. And at the £100,000 um, level, there's not really all that much in it, um, frankly. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I think that the headlines are always, uh, you know, it's always the devil is in the detail. And the reality is, it's not until you actually look at the facts and figures that you can actually see how any changes um, will be applied. And as you say, actually, at the 100k mark, uh, the reality is there's little difference. It's only when we get up to the higher, higher, um, sort of £200,000 um, earners that actually you start seeing some sort of significant differences. Well, certainly that's um, the feedback that we've had from readers. But income tax grabs the immediate attention of voters. But both Labour and the Lib Dems have plans to reform the capital gains tax regime and also um, to tinker with dividend tax that could prove really costly to particular groups of listeners, notably pensioners, investors and also entrepreneurs. Yeah, so we've got both the Lib Dems and Labour who are going to scrap the annual allowance. Um, It's quite interesting because capital gains tax is one of those um, taxes, especially the annual allowance, isn't utilised as much as it really should be. Um, And if we look at the Lib Dem um, manifesto first, they're looking to have um, changed the rates of capital gains tax to actually equalise it at um, a marginal rate. So you'd be taxed on gains as you would be on income? Correct. Um, and on the labour side, we're actually looking to, they're looking to, to reduce the actual current annual allowances down to £1,000. Um, and then we would actually also see things like the dividend allowance, which is currently at £2,000 reduced from 5000 mm. um previously, that cut to £1,000 also. So actually we'll see, you know, self-employed individuals, perhaps not the higher earners that Labour are looking to target or um, and actually seeing that being brought to people who are being paid from a self-employed income, they're actually re- receiving dividend payments. You might have pensioners who are receiving um, dividends from their savings to supplement their income. So actually, the targeting isn't necessarily proportionate to higher rate. It, it, we will also see at the lower end um, individuals who are going to be taxed. And certainly we've had lots of correspondence from readers who own shares outside of an ISA structure mm. who, who who would be hit by any changes to dividend tax and certainly have been hit by the existing changes that have been made. I mean, just stands to, you know, to emphasise the point that ISAs really are the best home um, for your investments. And that, that £20,000 a year threshold is um, remarkably generous, although not so if you're, if no. you're in your 70s and 80s and don't have as long to kind of port your investments over. But seeing as older people are more likely to vote, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised that no major changes have been mooted to pensions tax relief or the tax-free lump sum that you can take from a pension. Yes, it's quite a relief to not see pensions as a headline. Um, that said, I always worry slightly though because we I don't think we've had an, um, a budget in the last decade where we haven't seen some tweaking of the pensions legislation. So even post-election, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that we might see some tweaking around the edges. That said, what was welcoming is obviously we've had some, there are obviously some complexities in the pensions taper annual allowance, um, which is in particularly focusing on NHS at the moment. And all the parties have said that they will look at that um, very quickly after the election. And one would hope that they would look at it for every 
everybody and not just people employed by the NHS. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, again, you know, the NHS doctor is getting the headlines, but actually it has to be across the board. Yeah, although bankers going on strike and um, (laughs) refusing to work and turning down overtime may not cause so much of a problem, um, I accept. And finally, the self-employed. Now, the Lib Dems were pretty punchy about the incoming IR35 legislation due in in April, which affects um, the conditions of employment for contractors and freelancers. And the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, has actually commented that he may soften his stance on IR35's introduction. Yeah, I I think that's, you know, it's welcome that actually, again, you know, I think we've got to ensure that that any commitment is looked at very quickly because April is not far away. And, you know, the reality is that the legislation is going to affect from April 2020. So if whoever wins the election, they need to look at this and they need to provide guidance very quickly after any outcome of any election. Um, I think for, um, you know, individuals who are you know, who are going to be caught by this, you know, they need to start planning now on the basis that it will come in, even on the basis that some people are saying they're going to look at it, because look at it doesn't mean scrap it. Yes, very wise words there from Rachel Griffin, who is a tax and wealth expert at Quilter. You can read our full article, The General Election and Your Finances, online now at ft.com slash money. And of course, stay glued to the ft.com website for live coverage of the election result next week. And some of the money team will be helping to man the live blog on the day. If there was a poster girl for understanding why women tend to end up with smaller pensions than men, my next guest says it's her. Like many women, Emma Maslin found her corporate career did not offer the flexibility that she needed after having children. So she took a pay cut in order to move to a more flexible role, then work part time and eventually decided to start her own business. Sound familiar? Well, at the age of 30, she says her pension savings were equivalent to her husband's, but now age 38, life events mean her pension is significantly smaller. Emma's now working as a money coach and blogging on her website, The Money Whisperer, and joins me on the line now to tell us how she's working to address that gap. Welcome, Emma. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I mean, people talk about the gender pensions gap. This is a phrase listeners will be familiar with. But you say in your article that it's actually more of a black hole. Well, I think it's great that this issue is getting more attention because with with attention, it inspires people into action. But the reality still is that the, the research shows that women's pensions are typically ending up at about a third of the size of men's. Mm. And that's the quite... Problem is, the problem is that um, the policymakers are sort of focusing on how we can close that gap. Um, and what that means is that they're really looking at, you know, what the biggest contributing factor is to that gap. And, and really, for most women, it's time away from work caring for, for young children. That accounts for, I think, nearly about 50 percent of the gap. So the focus is around, you know, how we can get people back to work quicker. So flexible working arrangements um, and the policymakers are kind of looking at that auto-enrolment and what they can do around that. The, the problem that I see as a self-employed person is that the focus really is around um, policy change for, for employed people. Yes. And I think there's a, there's a huge option, a huge opportunity, sorry, to, to do something for, for the rest of us. We're the demographic that kind of seems to be a little bit forgotten in all of this. Well, absolutely. And I mean, regardless of gender, the self-employed have particular challenges when it comes to pensions. 
Recent research from Scottish widows in their retirement report shows that over a third of self-employed women are saving nothing at all into their pension. And obviously it isn't a gender-specific problem. It it affects all self-employed people. Um, But, you know, when you become self-employed, you lose that ability um, to have that free money in the form of employer contributions. And as we all know, when you're employed, if you pay into a pension, you put your, your piece in, then you get your tax relief and you also get your employer contribution. So those two, the tax relief and the employer contribution, can be really valuable to you. As a self-employed person, you obviously miss out on the employer contributions, which can be really substantial. There are also quite significant barriers in terms of just getting over that. How do I set it up? For so many people that I speak to, it really is, all down to I just don't know where to start, um, and then and then it becomes a priority issue. You know, when you're when you're running your own business and juggling a household, as many women are and men who are in this situation, um, you know, it it just sort of sits on the to do list and it sits on the to do list and it stays there and it just keeps at the bottom. It's, it's too hard. People don't understand the jargon. They don't understand how to go about setting one up. So unfortunately, we face that hurdle in terms of. It's easy for employed people when they're auto-enrolled. It's not easy when you're self-employed and you have to action it yourself. And although we're going to talk a little bit more about setting up a SIP and other things that you can do in a minute, but one of the biggest problems, even if self-employed people can work out um, you know, how to, how to start their own pension or find another scheme that they can pay into, it's the uncertainty of cash flow versus the inflexibility of pensions. You know, if you pay a load of money into your pension, you can't then get it out again until you're 55 or over. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's the same for everybody. It's the same for employed people and self-employed. But the reality of a self-employed person is that you don't have a consistent paycheck each month. So where your income is variable, you know, at times you want that ability to pause your pension contributions. And there are providers out there that can do that. It's about raising that level of awareness among the self-employed demographic that, that there are those options out there and you don't have to commit to a monthly contribution if that is something which you are scared to do. OK, well, let's move on to the practical steps that listeners could consider when it comes to pensions. So um, let's start with with the SIP um, idea, the self-invested personal pension. I mean, um, the US provider Vanguard has announced um, this week it's going to start moving into the SIP market um, with a very low cost, um, easy to use product. And obviously, they're not the only ones. There are a host of, of providers who are offering SIPs that you can open pretty much in a few clicks um, online and you'll still benefit from tax relief at your marginal rate and you can pay in up to 40,000 a year. Yeah, I think it's it's a great option. Um, people need to be looking at what the options are and I think it's just overcoming that hurdle and getting yourself motivated to go and do it. And one of the best ways to motivate yourself is to kind of check in with what your current pension situation is. There are a whole heap of calculators out there where you can put in what what the size of your current pension is and what your future contributions are going to be. And then it will spit out at the end, you know, what you are going to be provided for annually on retirement. And I think for a lot of people, they need to do that exercise to just motivate themselves to get going. Um, because, quite frankly, the numbers can be quite scary. (laughs) And then it comes down to picking a provider. Um, as we talked about already, I think for, for the self-employed, one of the one of the major factors is to consider a provider where you might be able to pause those monthly contributions or, you know, pop in a bit more as and when you've got the funds. 
Exactly. And also, on a more practical level, like you say, coming up with a plan of what you're going to pay in. Now, you said in your article for FT Money that you're now saving 40% of your income um, into into pensions and other savings, which is pretty impressive. Well, I am, but that isn't just into a pension because, again, I I like to have that flexibility. So for me, some of that 40% is going into a lifetime ISA and into a regular ISA as well because I don't want to lock it away forever. So whilst I um, talk about the benefits of pensions, you know, it's about being realistic and planning for what might be. And, And for some people, you know, it's about having that flexibility and making sure that you're choosing options which give you the ability to not feel uncomfortable, really. And certainly with the lifetime ISA, which I should say is an account for those under 40, um, like Emma, um, although you can pay in until the age of 50, like me, because I opened one a few days before my 40th birthday, you can pay in up to £4,000 per year into that type of ISA and get a 25% top up from the government. And certainly we've had other guests on the podcast before we've been self-employed who say that they are using them um, like a pension rather than um, for saving up for a housing deposit, which is the other the other need, and then the money that you save into um, a stocks and shares ISA. Obviously, if you're doing four thousand into a lifetime ISA, you can do up to sixteen thousand a year into a lifetime ISA. You're paying that out of your taxed income, but you won't have to pay tax on that when you take it out. Unlike mm. um, a pension, we're just adding these adding these on in case anyone at home is thinking like, hmm, what's the difference between a pension and an ISA? Because it's quite hard, really, for people who are self-employed, busy with running their own business, to easily find out about these kinds of things. There aren't many people you can turn to um, for, for advice either. No, I mean, I think it's it's just raising this level of awareness, and that's why I love doing what I do. Having these conversations inspires people to go and find out and have conversations, ask others what they're doing. And I think if we're talking about the, the self-employed employed population... Um, what I've found with with a number of people in my in my community um, and my online world, you know, when people grow their businesses and they actually get to a position where they're big enough to um, to move from being um, a self sorry a sole trader into a limited company, that's actually the spark that inspires them to think more about um, pensions because with growth of your business typically comes um, employment of others. Um, and obviously, as an employer, you have to offer a pension to your employees. So actually, that becomes a time when people start to learn more about this and actually sort of say to themselves, OK, well, if I'm offering it to others, then actually it's a great time for me to step into this and commit to, to saving for my own retirement. And that there could also be tax advantages if you are a limited company um, for paying into a business owner's um, pension when it comes to corporation tax. Now, a couple of readers commented on the article saying that the way that they're dealing with this problem is by making extra contributions themselves into their lower earning partner's pension to make up for the shortfall and, as one reader puts it, to maximise the tax advantages because even if you have a partner who is at home and not working, um, you can still pay um, a couple of thousand every year into their pension and benefit from basic rate tax relief. I think that's a great thing for people to think about. And I often say to people who are stay-at-home mums or, or, or the major carer in a family unit, you know, 
it's not a it's not a free job. You know, if somebody had to do that for you, you would be paying someone. You would be paying a nanny or, or a cleaner or all the multitude of other jobs that that people do when they stay at home caring for for children and a family. And it makes sense to have that conversation as a family. You know, what what can what can the earner, the breadwinner, contribute to the one who is staying at home in terms of their pension? And finally, Emma, tell us about some of the reaction um, that you've had to your piece um, from people on online. Well, they're really positive. I think, like I said, it's it's great to have these conversations. Um, it's not a sexist issue. Um, the reality is there is a gender pay gap. Um, women take time out to care for the young. They take time out to care for the elderly. When they do go back to work, they tend to go back into part-time roles and in caring roles, which tend to be lower paid as well. So it, it, it is an issue. It's not a sexist issue. Um, and it's one that really needs attention and, and policy change to ensure that everybody is, is getting captured. And we as a society are ensuring that we don't end up with this huge pension crisis in the future. Well, thanks very much there to Emma Maslin, who blogs as The Money Whisperer. You can read her guest column for FT Money, Self-Employed Women, How Good Is Your Pension?, which is out now on our website, ft.com slash money. Notes, dosh, readies, spondulix, bangers and mash, beer vouchers, lolly or dough. Whatever you call cash, it seems the wealthy can't get enough of it. A recent survey by UBS Bank found that cash accounted for 25% of the portfolio of the average wealthy investor. That's higher than most experts would recommend. Yet 60% of those investors said that they wanted to hold even more. This fact inspired our resident money man, James Max, to opine on why he loves physical cash so much. And he joins me in the studio today. Welcome, James. Well, hello. So in our contactless world, it's becoming a bit of a challenge to keep loving cash. It really is, isn't it? I mean, the thing about cash is it gives you the ultimate freedom. Of course, there are the negative sides to it, the concerns of wandering around the streets with too much cash in your pockets, all that sort of business. Having said that, there is nothing nicer than having a small you know, wedge of notes. Now, whether you like the 20s or the 50s, 50s is very difficult to uh, spend in certain establishments uh, because of the obvious reasons. But whether it's 20s, 50s, lovely. And I'm not talking, by the way, as I mentioned in my uh, column, I'm not talking about getting a used, used load of notes, you know, dosh, dosh, bosh, bosh, loads all that of sort money. of loads of money, which incidentally, the link in the article that allows you to go and have a little bit of a down the rabbit hole look at loads of money uh, is quite fun. Yeah, we put that in for our, our millennial readers who may not be aware of the work of Harry Enfield. Well, indeed, they may not be. And oh, have they missed out? I'd forgotten <laughs> how good that is. Oh, wonderful. Yes. <laughs> it's certainly all Wop- your wad on the counter. <laughs> Lovely. Goodness me. Um, the, I know, goodness me. The, the point about it is, though, that I think that there is something psychological about it as well as the practical. Mm. Um, what we forget about our contactless world is that every single time you are tapping, you are taking money away from the retailer, uh, from the person that you're doing the business with, from uh, the other side. And I do understand that sometimes certainty is what they want. You can do bank transfers. uh, You can do it via a a direct, you know, a debit card, which perhaps removes the amount. But the thing about this world is that nothing is free. And I do understand, of course, the practicalities of getting cash out, that even, for example, taking cash out of a wall, if you're not careful, can also not be free. Um, But the thing is that we forget that particularly with small retailers and particularly with restaurants, there's something where if you're using cash, you will probably get a bit of a a better service. And then that second part, the psychological aspect. 
Oh, I don't know what it is, but just having a little bit of cash, particularly when it's a paper note, something beautiful about it. And sadly, because of the polymers, it, it's it's going to go out of fashion. It's probably going to disappear from my life. We'll probably have ta- cash taken away because they can't track you. They can't use... There's no data. You're, you're um, anonymous. And also... Um, you know that you won't have that sort of fun, if you like, with with the uh, with the old fashioned notes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned polymer notes because quite a lot of the readers who comment below the line on on your column are actually for once in agreement with you that they don't like the polymer notes either. And I think one of the things that we don't like about them, it doesn't feel like cash. Uh, the second thing is that there's just some impracticals, and the impractical is that, say, for example, you, you I don't know, you might have a hangover, you might not, who knows. Uh, well, put it this way. I'll talk about my hangover the other day. So I took my hangover to the newspaper shop to go and buy a newspaper. And of course, then you put your hand in your pocket to get some notes out. And then you've got some polymers in the pocket. And then, and then you take your hand out. You've got the one you want. And everything else springs out. They all concertina. They concertina together. And you look like some kind of, I don't know, an old person cretin, whatever it may be. <laughs> uh, it's just, and, and you're scrabbling around on the floor for your notes and things. And it's just a disappointing experience. Yeah. they And also when you fold them up, because I sort of like fold them up and stick them in the back of my phone. Yes. Um, that's it. They're folded forever. It's a very unsatisfactory folding experience. Uh, so altogether, I know that they last longer, um, but you would have thought that whoever designed these notes or, I mean, you know, goodbye, Mark Carney. I, I thank you for nothing. You've given us these cheap, horrible overseas notes uh, and, and you might have saved yourself a few quid on the circulation point. But Oh, the old ones were lovely. Now, with the £50 notes, of course, there is a polymer note coming down the line. But at the moment, the £50 note, although elusive, I had to get some out for an FT Money photo shoot once where we got an origami artist to make animals out of £50 notes. And I had to go into about three different banks before I could find one with... Fifty pound notes of sufficient quality to be origami. Yes, people don't exactly. People don't really like having fifty pound notes around for whatever reason. They're just not there. They're just not, you know, they're not available. So, and I think it's because of maybe again it comes down to the negative connotations of cash. That if, for example, you're trying to transact a lot, you're trying to deal with various things. Um, if you want to do that, then certain notes become, you know, almost verboten. And the £50 note is one where a lot of people will get very sniffy. Some shops will say we don't take them. Uh, and that's because of, you know, have they been laundered? Uh, have they come from somewhere illicit? And, but I'm always impressed. And there was a there was a very well-dressed lady uh, the other day at the supermarché. And, uh, and she got to the... She, she, you know how some of these actions are so impulsive, almost as if something may pop out. Anyway. Anyway, so I didn't really know what she was saying, but uh, out came the, the person. Paid in cash. Anyway, so and she had £50 notes, and I was so impressed. I mean, it's smoked salmon and quail's eggs. Lovely. But maybe I'm just being a little bit peculiar about this. But there is, I think, coming down to that transaction point and that psychology point of just having notes on you, the wonderful things. Mm. Well, I mean, we've... Enjoy them whilst you can. We've pointed out in a a previous column, you know, the effects of inflation. um, Frankly, you know, the £50 note should be more widely accepted um, than it has been. Now, one reader commented, um, James... 
The study you talk about by UBS, people hold 25% of their portfolio in cash. That doesn't mean they actually have physical cash notes. That means they have it in their bank account. Uh, Yes, I know. Uh, We're well aware of the difference between keeping cash as cash and cash in notes. And there are obviously differences. And one of them is safety. If you've got a really secure place to keep your notes, then maybe that's absolutely fine. You keep wedges of them in in your safe. In wherever it is. Um, and of course, if you keep notes uh, in cash form in your investments, you do need to be careful that you don't keep uh, so much cash that you go above um, the, the safe amount, £85,000, where it's covered by uh, the cash protection scheme. Um, but what it does mean, though, is that when we have uh, periods of particularly um, volatile markets, such as we do at the moment, and inevitably with the politics that we have, with an election on the way, with um, goodness knows... Uh, Um, Donald J, who could say anything at any moment and the market could move by X percent. Sometimes having cash, particularly if you've got expenditure in your account, that's one set of arguments. Mm. What I'm talking about, obviously, is I'm talking about um, that one step removal where you remove some of that cash out of an account that somebody else is looking for you and have it as physical cash. I mean, I got an email from a friend of mine who said that every time he he said he likes to have a stack of cash and he said he empathised with me and he said, it's not not usual that I agree with you, but I empathise. But he said every Every time I go into my bank and ask for £2,000 in cash, which I then take home, stick in the in the safe, he said, I, I feel like a criminal because of the amount of processes that I have to go through to get my money. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. I would say on that point, a lot of the banks have got extra checks and balances that they have put in on people making big withdrawals just because fraudsters target the elderly so much, you know, people who are, you know, promising to clear their guttering. And one of the good things that banks do do is actually ask questions in a way that the old-fashioned bank managers um, used to. And they can, in many cases, um, stop that kind of fraud. So personally, I'm happy to put up with um, a slight inconvenience. But... um, Talking of inconvenience, <laughs> let's look at your reader comments um, on the bottom of this issue. Have you got um, a, a couple of favourites you'd like to tell us about? Well, yes, as you can imagine, a veritable feast at this time. Uh, what's wrong with the sheepskin coat? It goes well with the jag. All I can report is, whilst there may have been two jags in the uh, selection, I don't think a sheepskin coat goes well with an electric jag. And the other one, the jag, that's gone. You've sold it. Sold it. Well, we no doubt... We'll sold be, it for what I bought it for. Hooray! Well, we'll be reading about that in one of your future films. Oh, I'm sure. Now, um, Wombat Combat. Um, he, I assume it's a he. It could be a woman. It could be. This columnist has the rare skill of making me want to puke, even when I agree with what he says. But at all other times, too. I was really pleased with this comment because this is one of my favourite. In fact, I think I, I even went in there and I commented this was my favourite comment of the week because I think that's a rare skill. Uh, after all, you know, I'm here to uh, provoke perhaps a little bit, but making you want to puke, I mean, that's that's epic. And then a couple of serious points here. One from English Rose, who I have to say, hello, English Rose, if you're listening. You are one of my favourite commenters on FT.com. Um, she says, I exhort readers to use cash when they can, otherwise the state will abolish it and control us all the more. I draw out £500 and then use that for the supermarket and petrol spending, etc. Um, and other readers have been bemoaning the fact that they can't use cash um, at the railway station to pay for parking. It's causing quite a rumpus. It is causing a rumpus. And the thing is that we are increasingly being told by the state that we can't use cash because, of course, uh, you can't... Uh, 
tip people in the same way. It all has to go through the system. And there's this thing called data every time you spend. Didn't uh, one of the credit cards come out with this thing about spending, that they take one in every three or one every four pounds spent in the UK via their credit card system? And, of course, they know exactly where we're spending it, what time, uh, whether we spend it at big shops or multiples or the same sort of stuff that we buy before. You know, this data is now being rinsed. And the thing is that they are taking the benefit of that data and your work rather than you being able to get the benefit not only of the joy of using cash, but also the uh, anonymous nature in which you can deploy it and the deals that you can secure with it. <laughs> well, we'll draw a line. Use it the, or lose it. We'll draw a line under that one. Thank you very much to James Maxwell, Rich People's Columnist. If you missed his column on cash, um, you can find us at ft.com slash money. And if you'd like to contact James with a problem of your own, his personal email address is richpeoplesproblems at ft.com. Note there is no apostrophe to his disgust in that email address. Very disappointing. Well, thank you very much for joining us this week. That's all from The Money Show. If you want to get in touch with us or our team of experts, you can email us, money at ft.com. And for the latest news updates, you can follow us on Twitter, at FT Money. The podcast was produced in London today by Lucy Warwick-Ching. I'm Claire Barrett, and we'll be seeing you again, we hope, next week. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.